So Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, his, in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men, must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lots fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Well, do keep that open in front of you. And have you ever given any thoughts to uh, just how can we have confidence that the gospel going out through God's people into the world is actually God's plan? Have you ever thought, how can we be sure that all of this is the case? Well, a good thing to do is to look at the foundations of what we believe. If you're ever buying a home, I'm told that uh, you get a surveyor in first. Check out the foundations, the the wiring. If you're in the financial world, you uh, have a look at the risk to your firm before you sign off on the big deal. If you're looking at a school for your children... You might go on a visit first. Check out the school's foundational beliefs and educational philosophy. See if it's a good fit. If you're applying to university, you get a prospectus. You speak to students there. You maybe go see what it's like at an open day. There's something inherent in us, isn't there, that wants to have confidence in our decisions and uh, confidence uh, in in order to be able to uh, take actions decisively. There's whole industries set up to help that happen. Surveyors, actuaries, risk managers. Today's passage 
Luke wants us to have confidence. We started last week to see that this is the volume two of Dr. Luke's work concerning all Jesus began to do and teach, as you can see in in chapter one, verse two. And we saw God's plan was that the Holy Spirit would come once Jesus had left and empower his apostles to be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And we saw that as Jesus is still ascended and the, the end has not yet come, we get to join in in God's work as spirit-empowered disciples sharing uh, the good news of the risen Christ to the ends of the earth. And today, it's the work of the surveyor, checking out the foundations. How can we have confidence that all of this is the case? And the first point that Luke gives us is that we're to have confidence in the apostolic foundation. So verses 12 to 14, have confidence in the apostolic foundation. We pick up the story after Jesus has ascended and the angels have told them to to go. And they return, don't they? Uh, Under instruction to wait for the promised Holy Spirit, they return to Jerusalem. And it's a short walk away. Uh, You were only allowed to walk a a short while on the Sabbath day. So that term was used as, as a term of measurement, a Sabbath day's walk. And they went up to the upper room of a house where they'd been staying. And verse 13, Luke gives us the names of the people who were there. So we get Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These are the people that Jesus actually chose in Luke chapter 6. You can read it in Luke chapter 6, 12 to 16. Jesus had lots of followers, loads of people listening to him. And he'd been miraculously healing people on a Sabbath day, a day of rest. And it had really annoyed the religious establishment of the day. And after they argue with them, Jesus chooses his 12, from from his followers, the people there listening, he chooses 12 disciples, followers. He appoints them apostles which means sent. It's a sort of job title there. But here in Acts, there is only 11 of them. As Peter explains later, Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, he's already dead. But why does Luke list out these names like this? Why does he get so specific? You know, is it that he's joining in with the sort of Old Testament biblical tradition of making sure that everyone had their name written down? Is it a sort of vanity thing for the apostles where it's like, you know, I wasn't tagged in that photo. I I want to be included. No. Luke wants his readers to have confidence. These are real people. These are the guys. You can go and talk to them. Uh, James was there. You know James, don't you? No, not that James. James, the son of Alphaeus. It's, It's that exact conversation. It's you know him, right? Real people. Luke is saying, if you want to find more about about the the death of Jesus, his resurrection and all that happened, talk to these guys. Why not find one of the apostles? Chat to them. So you see what that does for our confidence today in the gospel? This isn't made up. Luke, if if he was making this up, why would he include the names of people who are well known? 
Why would he be involving others in this? So here today, if you're skeptical about Jesus, maybe visiting us for the very first time and not sure uh, if you think uh, it's, it's worth looking into further, let me encourage you. Consider these eyewitnesses, the apostles. Luke is writing this so that people in his day have confidence that it's real. He says, talk to these guys. We have it written down here, an account of all that is going on. We can have confidence as Luke's first readers had confidence. More than that, though, look at verse 14. Uh, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. One accord means uh, being united. United and devoted in prayer. Together with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were united, devoted in prayer. As they wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, they pray. And no doubt, they're reading scripture as well, as we'll see. But look who is with these 11. Together with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Some people have said that uh, the women here is referring to uh, the apostles' wives, but I'm not entirely convinced. I think it's, it's likely actually referring just to the women who were following Jesus in that day. Luke mentions in volume one of his work in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, that uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, all went to the tomb of Jesus and uh, discovered the resurrection had taken place. It's not unlikely that they were also, therefore, up here in the upper room, devoted in prayer. (coughs) Why would Luke include a detail like this? Well, I think it's also to grow in confidence in what he is recounting. You see, in the ancient world, the like, testimony of women, the witness of women, it wasn't counted as very reliable because it came from women. It's like very unfair in our, in our modern society. We would never think that. But the, uh, in the ancient world, that was how the society worked. And so to say that these women... They were also here. If Luke was making it up, he would never have said that. If he wanted people to believe him, he wouldn't have bothered to name the women who were there. Because the culture wouldn't have believed him. But because it's true, because it's real, he can name the women. He can say, speak to them. They were there as well. It's true. In fact, you can talk to them. Now, it's very clear that Luke believes the apostles were special, chosen by Jesus. But he includes the others here as well. I think it's to say, have confidence. This is true. You can talk to these real people about the real Jesus, who really did die in order that all wrongdoing could be forgiven. He really did rise from the dead, declaring that now we have peace with God. He really did leave his apostles in charge and ask them to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit to go to the ends of the earth with this message. He really did that. So maybe today we're here as uh, Christians and we're wondering, is this following Jesus actually really worth it? Living for him in my everyday life, the the work, the relationships, living for him in every single area. Is it actually a firm foundation that is worth building my life on? Luke's answer is yes. 
Look back with confidence. Look back and have confidence. Have you ever um, seen rowers out in their boats, right? Uh, They're facing backwards, but as they go, they're moving forwards in a strange way, aren't they? And if you ever thought, well, you know, how do these guys actually know how to steer? Well, it's by looking backwards, isn't it? By aligning themselves with what has gone before, they can work out if they're in the middle of the river and uh, if they're going the right direction. It's how they orientate themselves. For us today, we can be confident, looking at this past account, that if we're in line with what the apostles taught, then we're rightly orientated. We're on the right track. And while there may well be difficult times, and there will be times where following Jesus feels very costly, if we're looking back and in line with the apostles, then we can have confidence we're on the right track. That's the apostolic foundation. Next, we have uh, have confidence because of the the fulfillment of Scripture in verses 15 to 20. So, In those days, uh, so still in the 10 days between uh, Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, if you look at at verse 15, Peter uh, stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Uh, So meeting with more uh, of Jesus' followers than just the 11 apostles and women. He begins what is probably counted as the first sermon in the book of Acts. Look at verse 16. Brothers. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. The scripture had to be fulfilled. No doubt in those days, uh, Peter and the other apostles, they were diving into the scripture and discovering things that they'd read maybe thousands of times before, but seeing a whole new light to it. These are about Jesus and what happened to him. So back in Luke chapter 24, volume one of Luke's work, in 15 to 27 of Luke 24, Jesus meets his followers on the road to Emmaus. And verse 27, beginning with Moses, all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And after recognizing, hang on, this is the risen Jesus, alive with us now, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then verse 45, he opens their mind to the scriptures. So the apostles reading in this time They have a whole new lens, an extra layer to all the scripture that they've read before. So Peter says the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David about Judas. That's in verse 18. So we often say the whole Bible is about Jesus. And it's easy to think, well, isn't that a bit of a stretch? The whole Bible? every single page about Jesus. But that's what Jesus taught the apostles, that all of it is to fulfill what Scripture says about him. 
And so his apostles are reading Psalm 69, and David are praying about enemies, and Psalm 109 about a replacement for a treacherous friend of, of the king. And Peter says, these are all about Judas, what he did to Jesus. And Luke adds some, some helpful historical detail here in, in verse 18. Now, this wicked man, that's Judas, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It's pretty uh, gruesome reading just before lunch, isn't it? it? It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everyone knew about this. So that the field was called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, there are some who point out that in uh, Matthew's account uh, of uh, Judas uh, dying, it has Judas doing the same, buying a field, but hanging himself. And so Matthew 27, uh, 3 to 10, that we read earlier, says Judas hanged himself. Who was right? Are, Are these contradicting? I don't think so, because uh, I think they aren't mutually exclusive. It's perfectly possible that that Judas did hang. He hanged and then either fell down or was cut down, because it was uh, shameful for someone from the people of God to hang from a tree. So someone may well have cut him down. Uh, You see uh, that explained in in Deuteronomy, but also Galatians 3.13. And so it's perfectly possible that then being cut down, lying there in the heat of the sun... Uh, his body exploded with the expansion of gas. It's a grim thing to happen, a terrible way to die. Peter says that Psalm 69, 25, may his camp become desolate, let, let there be no one to dwell in it. That's saying Jesus, uh, Judas, he's no longer counted as an apostle. And so Psalm 109, verse 8, means we need to find a replacement. So you can see him opening up the Old Testament uh, to his, his, his friends, to the other apostles and the 120 gathered there with him, preaching on these psalms. So when you're reading an Old Testament passage and you think, well, what does this mean? I'm not quite sure why this is in the Bible. Well, starting with the original context is key to, to getting understanding. But then thinking, okay, now how does this point me towards Jesus? In what way? does this foreshadow him? It's a very helpful way to understand the Bible. But why is Luke making such a big deal out of this, about replacing Judas? I think it's because of the significance of this office, of there being 12 apostles. So the apostles, the 12 of them, replace, in, in biblical terms, the 12 tribes of Israel. In a way, the 12 tribes were a signpost to the 12 apostles. So back in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, when Jesus is rejected by the religious establishment, effectively rejected as the true king by the 12 tribes who were awaiting their Messiah, God's anointed saviour, Jesus then appoints the apostles after that rejection. And Jesus says to his apostles at the Last Supper in Luke 22, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father has conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And when, if we look 
back at the, the vision that Ezekiel has of the new creation, the new city of Jerusalem, he says there, there'll be four walls, three names on each wall being uh, one for each of the 12 tribes. That's Ezekiel 48. But then we go and see the book of Revelation in chapter 21. This is repeated, uh, looking forward to the new city of Jerusalem, the new creation. The four walls is repeated, but the foundations get described. And what are the foundations that lie below the walls that have the 12 tribes of Israel on? Revelation 21, 14. The walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's quite a lot to take in. The significance of there being 12 apostles is that while in the Old Covenant, being part of 12 tribes meant that you were part of the people of God, actually, the 12 apostles are the very foundation of faith. And so uh, being in line with their teaching means you're now part of the people of God. Reject their teaching, and we're rejecting Jesus. So this is a new 12, chosen. And so Luke wants us to have confidence in this. The scripture is being fulfilled by choosing a 12th apostle. He's wanting to show that this is a very clear, consistent, a biblical, firm foundation of the faith. The apostles succeeding the 12 tribes, the the firmest of foundations. This isn't a brand new idea they came up with, but it was God's plan all along. And so he wants them to have confidence in it. Now, did you know that uh, the building One Canada Square, the uh, 50 floors in that building, if you're working on floor 45, or whatever uh, floor your office is on. You are very grateful, aren't you, for deep and firm foundations. The 50 floors of one Canada Square. You're on floor 45. You are very grateful for the 222 piles going 23 meters deep into the earth each. And the fact that they were planned all along, and they went in long before the rest of the building was built... The deep foundations were set. So you're confident if you're up there in those foundations. So imagine being one of Luke's first readers or one of the early hearers of the gospel. There may have been those around you saying, this is just some sort of newfangled sect of some kind, a modern idea. Don't abandon the ancient faith of the 12 tribes of Israel for this Jesus guy. Luke's readers, though they can have confidence they actually have the firmest of foundations because it's one consistent biblical picture. And so this is why Luke is including the choosing of a 12th man. For us today, uh, we therefore, if if we hear some teaching in, in church or online that doesn't line up with the apostolic foundations, aligning fully with scripture, we shouldn't follow it. We shouldn't trust it. But as it is, if we're in line with what the apostles taught, a consistent picture in scripture, then we can have full confidence. We can follow it. So have confidence in the fulfillment of scripture. And finally, have confidence in the choosing 
of the 12th apostle. Verses 21 to 26. We now see the uh, thought process and uh, how the apostles decided who would be the 12th apostle. What makes an apostle? Uh, Because the word just means sent, doesn't it? But it was a specific job role. It was an office, if you like. What qualified them? Well, verse 21, they explain it. Peter explains it. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So a witness to Jesus from the very beginning. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. When Jesus was baptized to the ascension, one of the guys who's been around the whole time, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. One of them is going to have to take this office. And so he had to have been there from the beginning. And he had to have seen the risen Jesus. And Jesus showed himself to them in many different ways. We've got some references in the footnotes. But then uh, appointed by Jesus, given a specific commission or charge, as uh, the apostles had been. And then Jesus promised his Holy Spirit for his apostles in John 14 and 16. So you sometimes hear of church pastors maybe calling themselves an apostle, Apostle Caleb, if you like. But it's as if they're inhabiting this office of apostle. Sometimes it's based off Ephesians 4, chapter 11, where Paul talks about the spiritual uh, gift, the spirit gifting the church, prophets, apostles, pastors, and teachers, etc. So they get this sort of idea that uh, I've got the spiritual gift of apostleship, and so you can call me Apostle Callum. But clearly they're not apostles if they haven't seen the risen Jesus. And so uh, they sort of are taking on an office that actually isn't theirs. They didn't receive this commission from Jesus directly. And so I think it's worth bearing in mind if one day you're moving away from London and and you're away from the barge and uh, your local church, uh, just be aware that if someone's saying that they're called an apostle and they are an apostle, that's what they're saying. But that's not the qualification that Peter gives in Acts. But it leaves us with a question, doesn't it? If you know the story of Acts, then you've got this question in your mind, don't you? What about the apostle Paul? The 13th apostle. Well, it's very clear that in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, Paul sees the risen Jesus revealed to him. And he receives a commission to go to the Gentiles in verse 15, Acts 9, 15. And so um, Paul becomes an apostle. Uh, The other apostles agree that. And uh, he has to defend that status throughout the New Testament and his writings. And uh, you know, just if, if people are saying that they are apostles, it's, it's worth pointing out that Paul doesn't then, then say to uh, Timothy, who maybe he was like mentoring at the time, he doesn't say, uh, it's your job now, you're the new apostle. And he doesn't say to Titus, uh, you're an apostle now, so go and appoint uh, elders where you are. No. Paul is an apostle because he has the unique seeing of the, the risen Jesus and a unique commission from him, as do the twelve. But how do the apostles actually make up their mind in Acts chapter 1? Because they've got two good candidates, don't they? They put forward two, Joseph, 
called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Joseph of many names and Matthias. What do they do then? They pray, don't they? Verse 24. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you, you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they pray, committing the decision to God. God is powerful. He knows everything. But then something slightly surprising happens, doesn't it? Verse 26, they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Casting lots is the sort of ancient equivalent of flipping a coin, if you like. And they do that. Uh, it happened a lot in, in biblical times, particularly when deciding sort of uh, uh, things to do with the priesthood. There was the belief in, explained in Proverbs 16.33 that if the, lost is, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There was a big belief in, in God being powerful over the lots being cast. 1 Chronicles 24.31, you see an example of this played out. They also cast lots, just as their relatives and descendants of Aaron did, in the presence of King David. It was a way of deciding who was going to go in and into the temple and worship God. Luke 1 verse 9, we even see that once Zechariah's vision, uh, once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the casting of lots, like flipping a coin, that happened in those days, leaving it not to chance, but to the Lord. They weren't so flippant in their decision-making, though, to just cast lots. Because, as we've seen, they've been praying, they've been searching scripture, they've used common sense in just putting forward two equally qualified candidates, nothing between the two, and therefore they've cast lots. And that's what they do. It's again showing us, isn't it, that this isn't something they did on a whim. Luke wants his readers to have confidence that the apostles are in line with the whole witness of Scripture. And this is something that you can believe. The long tradition of, of seeking God's will by the casting of lots, particularly to decide leaders of God's people. But it leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Can we cast lots today? Uh, can we decide uh, God's will for our life by the, the flipping of a coin, if you like? So, uh, John Chrysostom was an early church father, um, like, uh, and he said that uh, because we have the Holy Spirit now, we don't need to cast lots. He was looking at this sort of 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost, and he said, they're casting lots, but now we've got the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that is potentially a little bit restrictive, expecting the, the Spirit to guide us in... Uh, matters when you know, two equally good candidates are put forward. Um, in, in that sense, um, it's, it's perhaps a, a bit restrictive to, to say it has to be the Holy Spirit guiding us. But, but don't simply decide to make a choice uh, in life because uh, you've maybe prayed, closed your eyes, opened the Bible to a random page, put your finger on a verse and said, Lord, uh, is it your will? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Uh, 
it, does, it doesn't make sense as a way to make good decisions, does it? Don't do that. But you see how the, the apostles made decisions? Diligent searching of scripture, prayer, common sense, and then they cast lots. And they did it together. So you don't need to be casting lots to work out whether or not you should be turning left at a traffic light or whether or not it's chicken or beef for dinner or whatever. But when it comes to changing job and you've got two equally good opportunities before you and there's literally nothing between them, you've searched scripture and as far as you can tell, you'll be able to glorify God in these job roles. You've prayed about it. You've used common sense. You've been united in prayer. You know, you've asked your growth group to pray with you and asked what they thought as well. But if you really can't decide, then maybe you should pray, flip a coin. And uh, maybe it's better than being sort of paralyzed by the decision. It's not something that you need to be doing for every single choice uh, in your day-to-day life. But Luke here wants his readers to have confidence that (laughs) this isn't something they did on a whim but it's something that has deep biblical roots. And so Luke wants his original readers to have full confidence in what the apostles were teaching. He wants them to have full confidence in the rest of this book of Acts that we'll see as we we journey onwards. The events are really true. The teachings are really sound. They need to be believed. And so he includes this slightly strange passage in the 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost for us today. It gives us evidence and proof, a reassuring confidence that the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for us today as well. Let me, uh, let's take a moment and uh, just reflect on what we've heard today, and then we'll continue our service in prayer.